Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. Our goal is to get to the root issues of systemic problems using a theological and psychological lens. We hope you enjoy. Putman Restoration is a proud sponsor of the Asking Why podcast. Putman Restoration specializes in commercial disaster services, including water damage, fire, smoke, mold, and storm. Their goal and desire is to get your properties up and running as soon as possible after disaster strikes. Hospitals, schools, hotels, and large municipal buildings. Malls, churches, and large commercial properties are their specialty. Manage properties nationwide? No problem. Putman Restoration Services, their clients nationwide. They are strategically partnered with elite restoration companies throughout the U.S. and Canada, giving their clients resources during disasters where normal companies would be tapped out. Trust the professionals at Putman Restoration when disaster strikes. Visit them online at www.putmanrestoration.com or give them a call at 318-453-5029. Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. And today I have my friend Marnie Faree on. Um, she is a CSAT. Um, she works out of Nashville at the Bethesda workshops. And she's an amazing therapist and counselor in person. And I've gotten to read her writings and be encouraged by her leadership and meet her over the last uh, seven or eight years of being a CSAT yeah, now. And uh, so I, I'm so thankful for your time, Marnie, and uh, to get to talk to you today on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. Awesome. Well, tell our listeners, so I know a lot about you, but tell our listeners kind of who you are and what you do currently, um, and then we'll get into kind of how you got into it. Okay. Um, you did a great introduction. Thank you. Uh, I founded what has become Bethesda Workshops in 1997. Wow. Uh, I had been a clinician for just a couple of years before that, so we'll talk more, but I, I came to this field uh, as a second career. And I've been blessed to guide and direct it and serve this ministry for 26 and a half years. So uh, that's been that's been amazing. Um, Bethesda is a short term, just four day uh, Christian based, but highly, highly clinical. All of our leaders are CSATs um, treatment program for those affected by sex addiction. So on the addict side, separate workshops for men and for women. Uh, on the partner side, then they can come back as couples. Um, we are beginning next year to do trauma intensive, so kind of a follow-up. We look at trauma in the beginning workshops, but as a follow-up then to really actually do that trauma, some of that trauma healing work. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had a program for adolescents that's been suspended for um, this season, but it's going to be re- resurrected, and that's been pretty wild ride for yeah. that one. And uh, I'm a um, person in long-term recovery. I um, have two fabulous young adult children and their spouses and four precious grandchildren. I'm a grand Marnie. That's the most important thing about me. Uh, and... Um, that's that's a beginning point yeah that's great yeah so for people listening bethesda is a workshop that is amazing and so we're able to you know go or send people who are struggling with sex addiction whether that's porn addiction or betrayal trauma or or affairs or uh you know prostitution there's a whole wide yeah thing and you you, i know most of you have listened to our podcast before on a lot of those topics and the csat discussion um but I've sent tons of clients to you guys and I have been just so thankful for the work that they can do. And what I see is that either, you know, somebody kind of finds themselves, um, 
getting busted or are confessing and, and asking for help and then going there right off the bat. And all of a sudden, you know, they go to Bethesda and they get, you know, four days of an amazing um, awakening and, and lots of deep work and, and, and that really can catapult therapy afterwards because you get through yeah. so many weeks of what would take, you know, months uh, in one-on-one sessions for an hour a group very quickly. And it gives me as a therapist, so much information to work off of, um, and the client so much information to work off of, or I've done it where I've seen people for a while. They, you know, they're, they're doing well, but they haven't given me all the information or we haven't figured it out. And then another relapse happens or more relapses happen, or they just get to a point where they're like, I, I need some deeper work and more than you can give me in this season. And so they'll come in the middle of kind of treatment with me and come to you guys. And then they'll, the same thing will happen. They'll come back with just, all these things, you know, and even if we've done a trauma egg or even if we've done it, doing it in the, in the communal people doing, you know, working together, hearing other stories and everybody going through that together has been just an amazing, you know, process. So I thank you for all the work you do. And it's, it really, I mean, it saves people's lives for sure. Oh, thank you. Um, that's a great marketing description. You're hired. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we do want people to know that, that it's an intensive is helpful wherever they are in the journey. Sometimes people in the beginning think, well, I'm not that bad. I don't need an intensive. It's just pornography or just have one affair or whatever the thing is. Uh, and we encourage people to think about um, you can do this the hard way or the hardest way because there's not an easy way. That's right. And and the the easier way is to get tons of information up front, just like you described. But what also happens is that just like you're saying, folks who've worked, including with CSATs and great therapists like you, for a while, maybe even a year or two, and maybe they're even sober, but there's something about, especially if they feel stuck, but there's something about coming to that group intensive, because we're all group, but the groups are small. So everybody gets a lot of individual attention um, from the leader and from the other people in the group. <clears throat> it just synthesizes, you know, just the four days of immersion in all of this connects a lot of dots. And um, I'm really, I'm really blessed and grateful and still kind of amazed after 26 and a half years that I get to do this. I got to do this and, and I get to keep doing the part of it that I love. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, so the reason I, I wanted to have you on was because I think, you know, a lot of our listeners already know that we do a lot of sex addiction work, a lot of pornography sure. work. Um, and then I just recently released a book on trauma yeah. and, and sex yes. addiction and yeah. all those things that, and, um, sexual neglect is the word that I'm trying to, you know, get out there. Um, yeah. and in your book out of the doghouse, um, you know, and in the work that you've done, I think you do, you do a great job of explaining, you know, so much about sex addiction from a Christian perspective. And I still think we have a lot of work to do within the church of having these conversations and bringing it to light. So you tell me your story, what, what got you into, and we'll get into the book and kind of the Christian, that's what I'd like to talk about is more of like a, a Christian ethos or ethic around sexuality and recovery. And, but I think your story kind of plays into that. So tell, can I get, if you wouldn't mind telling your, your story and kind of what made you get into CSAT work and, and uh, how this came about. Sure, thanks. I'm I'm honored. Um, I'll just ask what what length are you looking for? Whatever whatever comes, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, honestly, I mean, I'll, I'll guide you and we'll talk through it. But you know, okay. just just give a uh, 
15. I mean, even if it takes 15 okay. minutes of talking through it, I don't want it okay. rushed, you know. That That's helpful. Um, well, like many people, especially in those early of us who were, were working in this field, I came to this field from my own story, from my own history. Uh, I'm a PK, a preacher's kid, a very, very conservative Christian denomination. Um, and he was a really, really big fish in that and that denomination, a man who deeply loved God. He was also a Christian educator, a PhD, um, just kind and generous hearted and a wonderful man in so many ways. And also someone who struggled with sex addiction mm. all of his life. So I came to this from growing up in an addictive home, from knowing that the stuff that I saw on the inside, the pornography, the inappropriate relationships, didn't match this public persona. Mm -hmm. And that's like the hallmark of addiction. Yeah. Uh, and, and very common. Well, and so, so, so common, of course. Um, and and I, so I think maybe later um, in this podcast, we can talk, as you mentioned, about some of this Christian aspect and how people who do deeply love God with, with all their hearts, and they're sincere about that, how they keep doing this behavior that's clearly against that value system uh, mm -hmm. and their own value system and against God's God's plan. But that's that's what I grew up with. Um, youngest of three kids, have two older brothers. Um, my mother obviously then was married to a Christian pastor, but also to a sex addict. And in the 1950s, there was no help for that. No one understood alcoholism, much less sex addiction. <laughs> right. And... So her story is heartbreaking to me. Um, she didn't know where to turn for for help. Uh, and again, there, there wasn't help. She did confide in one friend, and I'm grateful she had that person. Um, but must have been such such a horrible situation for her to find herself. And she found a surprising way out called colon cancer. Mm. Uh, she was struggling with all the symptoms of colon cancer. She was very aware of that because her father had had colon cancer, so she knew all about that disease uh, and hid it until she was so sick that she was diagnosed with advanced stage four colon cancer, and my mother died when, she was th when I was three. Oh, wow. So that huge breach of attachment, we would call it clinically, yes. that huge abandonment, that huge... Uh, you just released a book on trauma. I knew in my bones all my life that my mother was choosing to die and leave me. I felt that uh, always. It was this shroud that hung over me. And it wasn't until I entered recovery when I was 35 years old that I heard that story. Mm -hmm. And I am grateful that her best friend, who I went to talk with to find out some information about my mother, because we, we didn't talk about her in the family, uh, was willing to tell that story. She had never told that to anyone, wow. uh, not even her husband. And so I'm grateful that was a huge trauma piece for me. Um, I also, though, experienced sexual abuse for 15 years mm. in my father's home. Um, his form of sex addiction, both in his pornography and in his acting out, was same sex. And this man was one of his um, male lovers who was someone that my father considered a best friend, and I certainly did. And he nurtured me and was kind to me and took me under his wing and really was a father figure for me because my dad was not 
available at all. He was a huge workaholic uh, as well as as um, struggling with sex addiction and perfectionism and all fueled by shame, of course. Yeah. And so this man was the most important pig figure in my childhood, uh, except for my father, but he was so much more available to me. Mm-hmm. I never thought about this as sexual abuse. He came in my life when I was five. Uh, and again, he was so nurturing and kind and, and encouraging. And that did fit my definition of sexual abuse, you know, right. for sure. As if anybody, again, was talking about that openly in the 60s. Yeah, or, hey, and that's, you know, that's kind of the discussion we've had offline, but online, too, like what I have here is people are still not talking about it, you know, right. way, way more than they were in the 60s. But that conversational right. piece is still abysmal still in what lacking. needs to happen. Yep. Yes. And so grooming behavior and, and all of that uh, finally culminating in full sexual activity when I was 16. And by that point, I was grown. I was so much responsible for myself. Uh, my father never remarried, so um, we kind of raised ourselves. There was a female caregiver who lived in our home. Uh, and I know she loved us and we loved her, but it, it was just not, she had no authority, if that makes sense. Yeah, of course. You know. So we were all just kind of left to our own devices to figure out life for ourselves. Gosh, that's so hard. And all of us actually coped, generally speaking, by going on that very overachieving side. Mm. Again, shame-driven, just like like our dad. Um, But that was certainly me. But the promiscuity, um, which which began for me when I happened to come upon this man and my father being fully sexual, Mm. door open, Late at night, I was walking down the hall to my bedroom, and that broke me. Um, was so confusing. Kind of put some puzzle pieces together because the pornography I had found was same sex, but I still didn't quite make that connection. Right. Uh, until that night, and I so wanted to be chosen, and became promiscuous, uh, seeking seeking love, seeking what I had with this man, which really wasn't about sex. Uh, It was about attention and affection and encouragement. And I found on this good Christian campus, there were a ton of guys who were willing to to be nice to me if I'd just be sexual with them. Right. And I was real willing to be sexual with them if they would just spend some time with me and tell me I was okay. So it's it's the classic setup for sexual addiction, for sexual love, for confusion around intensity and intimacy, and for all of those things. I mean, mine was as textbook as they get Mm. until... uh, until more recent years in the internet opened another whole generation who maybe don't have this kind of trauma, but just the chronicity uh, of the, the internet, the, the content, the, the hugely violent content, mm-hmm. <clears throat> all of that is, is pulling them in. But my, my story is just this classic trauma driven of <clears throat> abuse. And what I understand today more Clint about my own story is it was the abandonment, both from my mother but also from my father, who yeah. was just not <clears throat> available. That's the real engine. Of That's course. Real- yeah, I mean that that you know, <clears throat> your you know, the mo- your mom passing away so early, and not you know having someone who could guide you and shape you and mold you into what does a female look like and what does sexual exactly. health look like and how do women engage with men and how you know how do we have boundaries and how do we do all those things and then your dad you know, obviously having the splitting going on where his external self and his internal self is totally different. And then you having this, I mean, as a child, 
you know, and I know you know this cause you've done a lot of the work, but like as a kid of shame, you know, I experienced my own sexual trauma early on and exposure and all this kind of things as well. It's like you, you project it onto yourself as a young adult or an adult that you should have known better, or you should have saw the clues or, you know, you shouldn't have liked those things. But when you're a child and you have this huge deficit, sure, you'll go to anything for the emotional need. You right. know, for the connection. Right. That's that's why we call, you know, a sex addiction an intimacy disorder. Intimacy disorder. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. You know, we we as a culture and especially in the church, you know, the word addiction is so dirty and so bad and so uh, you know, in some ways seen as uncontrollable and all these things. But intimacy we we all get that we're looking for connection and we're looking for intimacy. Right. Um, people just you know have so much shame around it that we just can't talk about it. So I'm very proud. I know you've told your story a lot of times, but I know also, you know, it's always takes vulnerability. So I really appreciate you sharing. And um, thank thank you. Um, I've I've been blessed. God's call to me. It was very clear. Don't claim that it was audible, but it felt that way Mm -hmm. Um, from the very beginning of this story when I was in full blown addiction and suicidal and finally uh, got some help was to tell the story. So I've gotten to tell the story um, thousands of times, yeah. and it always is meaningful to me. Um, Good. So I'm grateful for the opportunity. So I had to set up, you know, for sex addiction. I married very young with a man who worshipped the ground I walked on. Ooh. And he stuck to me like Velcro, which felt like love. I Again, bet. from my story, from the attachment, from... Codependency and all that stuff. Yeah. All of that. You know, a, a nice guy, a, a good guy, another man who loved God and had a good heart. But we had zero skills for relationship. And I had such unrealistic expectations that now that we're married, we're 20 years old, which is crazy, but it's what we did. And therefore, sex doesn't have, is not supposed to have the shame. I thought that then everything would be fine. And I thought that he could fill a black hole inside. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite have the language for the black hole, and I for sure didn't have the word shame. I just was hoping he would make me okay with me. Right. And, of course, he couldn't do that. And he came from a, a very different-looking but an equally abusive, abandoning environment. We are heat-seeking missiles about that. Um, and so he had his own unhealthy coping, and pretty soon that marriage was in a lot of trouble. Um, counseling uh, was not a thing in the early 70s, uh, late 70s either. And um, asking for help was absolutely not a thing in my family. Mm. So um, we decided in our own best wisdom that we would divorce. And it would have been an easy divorce. Uh, We didn't have children. We didn't have any assets particularly. Um, Pretty mutually agreed that that was the right path. But Oh, my goodness, it rocked my father's world. And a lot of spiritual abuse about that. Um, People literally knocking on my door, sweet little gray-haired, blue-haired church ladies at 8 o'clock on Saturday mornings telling me I'm going to hell for getting a divorce. Mm. Um, and, And finally, my attitude from all of that, my father publicly disowned me, disfellowshipped me, insisted my brothers be a part of that. Just so much stuff was kind of, God save me from the Christians. You know, how, how has this been helpful? Um, and decided I would go on, of course, pull myself up, as was very much valued in our family. And I did. 
and very quickly met and married um, a second time. Another good man and kind man, very different personality-wise from my father or my first husband. I didn't realize I jumped from the ditch on one side of the road to the ditch on the other side of the road. Uh, he just looked so different. And again, he seemed um, um, very into me, which which fit my I so need to be chosen theme. He had been married once before. He and his first wife had divorced. They didn't have any children. Um, he's 10 years older than I am. And he said he had been single for 10 years. So he'd had a couple of significant relationships waiting for the right woman. And I'm like, and you pick me. Yeah. It was the happiest and healthiest relationship of my life till I entered recovery. I mean, he was a good man. We did life together really, really well. Just all the practicalities of of life and and just attitudes about money and child raising. We had two children pretty quickly, and and I really I was faithful to him. I'd never been faithful in a relationship before, so I thought this must be the right person, and. And didn't even realize I needed to look at my own story. Mm. Um, and life got so much easier for several years, and I was grateful. Until a whole series of stressors happened. Some of them, all of them really were external, uh, but big deals. We buried family members, multiple family members in a year. Uh, we made a choice for him to leave his great big deal Fortune 100 job, and we moved across the country back to Nashville. We were both born and raised, but... We didn't know each other and bought a new business and cut our income by two thirds. Mm. Um, so all of that was stressful. But I know what the biggest catalyst for what sent me into a deep dive into darkness, into ultimately addiction, uh, in addition to just those more circumstantial kind of a little bit, at least not as unusual things as this one is that uh, my father's sexual addiction, all of the pornography that had been a part of my life, that had been rumored for years in the church, but also in the the school um, where where he was academic dean, um, top second in command of the entire the entire campus. Um, they had always said, "Oh, it couldn't be his." You know, I mean, he's just so fabulous. It's got to be all these. You know, they're college guys. They they are over there all the time. We had dozens who actually lived in the house with us. It's got to be theirs. Mm-hmm. So that came to light, but so much worse was his sexual offending came to light. Oh, man. And what that looked like was that uh, there had for years been rumors as well about his too tight of friendships with different male students. Um, but finally, one came forward and would not be quiet. Bless, bless his courageous heart. Um, and another and another and another to talk about how he had groomed and then was sexual with them. Mm. And that had been going on for years and years and years and years. Uh, and that just broke me apart. Um, it was, it was uh, Me Too before Me Too was a movement, um, became, before the internet was around to, to fuel this grapevine of news and still spread like wildfire. I was on front page newspapers across the country uh, particularly within his religious circles. Um, and it broke him and it broke me. Mm. It began to put puzzle pieces together for me, uh, again, around the same sex stuff that, that came to my real attention when I was 17 years old and, and saw that activity. Um, and it, it was just really unbelievable. 
so much stuff about that. And I wanted my husband to help me process that. I wanted him to listen to that and be empathetic about how hard that was as well as sympathetic and just walk with me through that. And for a whole variety of reasons that I understand today, but I didn't understand then, uh, he couldn't. Uh, He had always been very... um, very emotionally closed, which I didn't realize because I had enough emotions for like four, 14 elephants, you know. So I thought that there was emotional connection because I was spewing emotions all over the place. And I didn't realize that he was so closed and so shut down until we really got in this level of crisis. And I felt abandoned. Mm, um, big trigger. And which was a huge trigger. And to be fair, I think that I was. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's um, it's healthy in a committed, particularly marriage relationship that you're going to support each other. Yeah, there has but to be I, some reciprocation, right? Res- yeah. Right. Um, but I didn't understand any of that then. And I began talking with a man from church through through my husband's influence. I got back into church, and I was so great about that. You know, I mean, it was. It's in my DNA. Uh, I think systemically a much healthier system than I grew up in, but I was glad about that. But I began talking with a man at church and having coffee and then go for drink, and before long we're in an affair. And at that point I had not acted out in any way since before Mm. David and I married. And you're how old at this point? And at that point I'm probably 30. Okay. Maybe 31. Um, And I'm off to the races in a sex addiction. I finally settled in this really intense relationship with a man next door um, and and acted out for the next three years. Um, eventually, this began to catch up with me. Uh, I was depressed. Uh, I was growing increasingly anxious. Uh, and then I was diagnosed with cervical cancer caused by HPV. Oof. Again, this was a time way before there was any emphasis on safe sex or protection or anything Women's like health that or anything. Yeah. And, um, I had three surgeries in a year for that. Uh, I'm, I'm completely cured. It, I just had surgical complications after the first one that made, made the next year pretty tough. Uh, but it's so added to my shame. Yeah. And, and by that point, while I really cared about this guy, I wanted to stop because the thought came to me, Marnie, your life is so unmanageable. Long mm-hmm. before 12 step rooms, long before any kind of recovery or counseling, because truth is truth. Yep. Um, and of course I stopped like 47 times, you know, but I couldn't, I couldn't stay stopped until finally the anxiety and the depression were becoming so much worse. A lot of PTSD symptoms that were happening, I think, triggered by my father's exposure until finally there came a day I was actively suicidal. Mm. I don't think I would have gone through with that because I knew what it felt like to be a motherless child. But I was just so undone. Uh, I couldn't imagine going on living, and I was way too scared to die. And I know that, again, in that moment, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself because I picked up the phone, and I called a dear friend, and I asked for help because I said, "I'm, I'm sitting here. Uh, in the floor with this full bottle of pills and a glass of water, and I'm really thinking about taking them all. And I just wanted somebody to understand why. And I told her about the affair, and it's not the first affair. And, you know, I actually had affairs in my first marriage. Uh, And I was just so surprised by what she said. 
Because I thought she was going to say the traditional Christian stuff of an affair, stop. Oh, gee, I've never thought about that before. <laughs> <laughs> or have you prayed about this? And, yeah, and yeah. I don't mean to make fun of those things. I just mean to emphasize when you're at the level of an addiction, those spiritual tools are not enough. Right. The same way they aren't when you're having a heart attack. Yep. Answer. But what she said to me, Clint, was just, Marnie, I'm so sorry. I'm like, what are you sorry for? I got myself into this hell of a mess. Mm -hmm. And she said, I'm sorry for your pain. Ooh. No one had ever seen my pain before, and I had been in pain since I was three years old. Mm. And she said, promise me you won't hurt yourself. I'm going to hang up the phone. You know, they lived only on the kitchen wall. And I'm coming, and I'll get you help. And she did. Oh. And she sat in my kitchen floor all that day long that day. And she heard my story. And she was the first one who said, Marnie, you didn't lose your virginity at 16 to this guy. She she knew our family well. She'd had Thanksgiving dinner with him. He'd been attached to our family at that point for 25 years. Mm -hmm. She said, that's sexual abuse. I'm like, what? And finally, she said, I'm working with a Christian counselor, and I think she could help you. And I'm like, oh, hell no, not a Christian counselor. I hope I can curse <laughs> on your podcast. What yeah, can you, I? you can say hell no. That's fine. And. And I said, no, I can't do a Christian counselor. I, the thought of telling this again after what had happened with me before and the spiritual abuse, I just said, no. And she said, no, I promise she's not like that. I think she could help you. Yeah. And within a week, I was sitting in this dear Christian counselor's office who in 1991 was one of maybe two dozen people in the country who had trained with this young up-and-coming researcher clinician named Dr. Patrick Carnes. Wow. God is faithful. And she knew, because Patrick was teaching this from the get-go, how to frame my story. She knew to look at the trauma. She knew that was what was fueling the acting out. Am I a sex addict? Yes. I, 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 don't, I don't bluster at that label, though of course I did in the beginning when we began to have to look at that part. But, but she knew that of all of these trauma pieces. Um, and Dr. Laura Moss saved my life, and I'm grateful for that. I believe with all my heart that when we, as hurting, wounded, addicted, or in partnership with somebody, are ready really for help, that God provides it. And God did that for me through Dr. Laura Moss, who had trained with Patrick Carnes, through her understanding of the trauma-driven nature of my acting out, uh, and she knew how to help me, and she walked with me, and I'm so, so, so grateful. And so that's what launched me. Uh, it was coming out of her office the first time that God said, you get to be my missionary to women especially, yeah. and you get to tell the story. And I've gotten to do that ever since, and it's ultimately amazing. went back to school and got a counseling degree. I actually was a journalist during this whole period, and all of this this media coverage so that was interesting I bet um, and um, and founded what ultimately became Bethesda workshops that that is so incredible and I've heard your story before but not live and in person and <laughs> um, I think like you said the, the thing that's beautiful to me about that is that you know your story does fit a very typical clinical kind of narrative that is just thousands of people Millions of people. Millions um, of people. Yeah. I mean, all, in my opinion, um, almost everybody to some degree. And, and not, not you know, not that it's that intense nowadays with kids, because I think 
the sexual abuse is still very, very high, but a lot, I think you kind of mentioned this, a lot more of the kids today are being exposed to porn and social media and adults through images and through videos and through online. And so there's, there's maybe less physical face-to-face sexual abuse. I'm not, I don't know that stat is true, but there's a lot more of the online exposure. And so they don't, a lot of them are addicted and getting into sex addiction and becoming intimacy disordered strugglers. Um, and their origin story isn't a person at their house sexually abusing them. It's being exposed to porn. But, I agree. but I think, you know, I'm 40 and my childhood and what you're describing was very similar. And so it's interesting, you know, this age gap where really right. if you're 27 or younger right now or 30 and younger, it's an entirely different world than what we experienced. And, and, uh, and you know, five generations before us ex- experienced and I think in, in my book, Building Better Bridges, what, I, what I'm trying to get people to see is that the, exactly what you said in your story, which is that this, uh, there's you know, the ACEs score, which is physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, and then physical and emotional neglect, that what's missing in that conversation is that childhood sexual neglect. It's the conversations that should have been taking place around sexual development, consent, body safety, um, you know, gender identity issues that every single human being on the planet goes through. And like you, I spent, you know, probably 20 years thinking it was all my fault and I enjoyed things or I initiated things or I should have said something or done something differently and feeling so much shame. And it wasn't until I sat with a therapist and they were like, Oh no, like that shouldn't have happened. Right. Right. That for the first time a light bulb goes on and you're like, and so you know, I think your story is beautiful because, and I know you do this and all your clients, but like as a Christian counselor, you know, um, this last year, and, and maybe this will hit you like it hit me, but la- this last year, you know, this theme of, you know, obviously helping people get recovered and then lots of people go, well, I want to help other people, right? They don't, might not take it as far as we have in some ways, but they start in their church or in their youth group or in their you know college group or wherever, just having conversations and sharing their story and, and beating that shame. But I think what I want for people is to see that, that, that at the core, right, that shame of I can't tell anyone else because I'm the only one is really the first thing that needs to be defeated. Right. And, and you, you've done such a beautiful job of, of turning that into a life's work for other people. And last year, I was reading this, this, this passage in Matthew where it talks about um, the veil being torn and how the veil's torn and then Jesus is resurrected. And it said, and, and many of the saints who were in the graves rose from the dead and walked around and many saw them and they entered into the holy city. And it was this moment of, of like, synthesis for me of like, yeah, that's, that's what this work of therapy is for me, for other people is that they find healing. And when Jesus resurrects something, it's not just for you. It's, it's so that your story is so powerful that it resurrects everybody around you who comes in contact with that story. And so I think your life is definitely a reflection of that. And, and I think gives, gives obviously God didn't intend for those things to happen, but it makes meaning out of that pain and purpose out of that pain. And Exactly. Um, I share often a a version of my story that I call redeeming the pain. Mm. And it's just so interesting, (laughs) all the different parallels, like this primary perpetrator who 
was actively sexual with me for 15 years from age 5 to 20. And then we continued a relationship because he was so dear, including a sexual relationship. When During my first marriage and um, when I started acting out in my second. I mean, this was this long, long, long-term relationship. He is the one. He has a Ph.D. in performance theater. Mm. And got me in to as a child acting and in college plays and all of this kind of stuff he fostered my writing he's the one who taught me how to write and speak and have this the stage presence now i come from a family of speakers so this public speaking doesn't frighten me supposedly that's a big fear of a lot of people it's not in my dna the opposite is same and (laughs) though at at the level um of I just know of of his work in shaping that part of me and my personality, and and look what I get to do with it today. Yeah, that's it's, a hard thing for people to square. <clears throat> you know, it's a very hard thing for people to square is th- that you know the thing that's the worst thing they've ever ever experienced also shapes them into some of the things God can use Absolutely. for these amazing things. It's it's it uh, takes a lot of work to get there. That's for sure. It it does, but. Gosh, it's such a wonderful place to be. Oh yeah, and it's true. It's true. It's absolutely true. Um, yeah, it's it's beautiful. Uh, the other thing I was thinking was, you know, in, within your story is just the common, the common theme of um, the splitting within the Christian world, especially for men. And nowadays, I mean, it's now the the porn addiction stats are almost the same in men and women, which women. is crazy. Yes. Um, yes, but uh, and we can talk. We can talk for hours about why that is. But I think ultimately. Yeah, the question you had I wrote down was, you know, how do we, people listening to this who maybe don't struggle with sexual, not sexual sin, because I think we all do, maybe are blinded to their own ability to sin in that way, or just don't have a proclivity to maybe pornography or some of these more hot, you know, there's things that are like, you know, uh, hot button topics that people would look at, especially I think women um, would look at and say, well, I would never do that. That's disgusting. How could they? And how could you as a Christian man who's a pastor or a leader ever, ever look at something like that? Can you maybe speak to some of that in, in your work and what you would say to somebody who asked that question? I think there are two branches of the answer. I think the first is clinical. That's part of the escalation of this issue. That, uh, And again, as you were well mentioning, the internet has just brought the tsunami of this because the average free porn that your 12-year-olds, for sure your 15, 16-year-olds are seeing, is not the free porn of our childhood, whether it was print or to you probably to some extent online stuff. Yep. This is unbelievably violent. Yep. This is a whole... This is a whole different ballgame. You can't even find softcore porn online. Like you no, can't even you, find like what you would find on Cinemax uh, on the internet. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so that's that's a difference. And so that then that escalation uh, continues in, into the novelty. That's how our brains work. I'm sure we could talk for hours about the neurochemistry and yeah. neurobiology of all of that. So there's there's that part of it. Uh, always seeking the next high. Always wanting the next um, new novel titillating thing. So that's part of it. Yeah, and so it, did, it didn't start that way. I think I hear you. Like what I would want people to hear is like, if you are if you don't understand why a 35-year-old or a 25-year-old minister could look at pornography, it's that they didn't decide yesterday to start looking at it. True, and they, 
people that age, they're growing up in this incredibly sexually saturated culture. Mm-hmm. You, you can't grow up in our culture without being exposed to, to so much sexual content uh, and, and to some extent sexual information. Yet, as you were talking earlier, it's not balanced with accurate information. You know, the teenagers today, there are classes and research being done to try to teach 14 to to 17-year-olds that this stuff they see on pornography is not how real people have sex. Right. You know, there's not the accurate information, much less the values, uh, real discussions about all of these things that you you mentioned earlier about how how to be um, a person, how how to be a gendered person, how what is healthy sexuality, what is intimacy, because we equate that with sex, which... Those don't necessarily go together. Right. And for sure, intimacy is so much bigger than anything sexual. Uh, so so it's, a, it's a double bind. It's like putting, putting somebody in the middle of, um, of the tsunami with, and then telling them, don't get blown away. Right. Because that's all the church says. Don't do this. Mm-hmm. Say, no, stop. The, the sexual stuff, that's wrong. Save that for marriage. Yeah, and you, sh- you shouldn't even desire it, right? Like, if and, you're a Christian, yeah. you shouldn't even have that any desire. sexual interest or, or, or deviance, you know, right? Or anything, yeah. Or, or, or anything. You shouldn't masturbate. And you're looking at this, you know, here's a 15-year-old. Uh, just the lack of awareness of human development and all that kind of stuff. So it's a huge setup for for failure, mm-hmm. for challenges that just the culture is doing. And then I think the Christian standpoint, a little bit we've talked about that, of just the church not really leaning in beyond condemnation and judgment to to provide healthy information, safe places to talk about this. Um, but then there's also, it's just the nature of addiction. Of, of It is addiction that keeps, generally speaking, otherwise principled people from making good choices because mm-hmm. they're not making choices in the moment. Sure, it all started with a choice yep. to have the first drink or the first cigarette or to first look at porn. Um, um, not not just being exposed to it, but just hey, let me let me. What, what is this? You mm-hmm. know, I, I, those are are generally speaking the first choices, but they take on a whole life of their own yep. in the. Cycle until it becomes truly compulsive. I keep doing what I don't want to do despite my best efforts to stop. Yeah. It sounds a lot like Romans 8 to me. <laughs> it does. One of the things that I, I think I try to play right out in the book is I give a lot of vignettes or stories of people, you know, general ones, nobody specific, but, sure. um, you know, I, I, I propose, I, and I use a very extreme, uh, example of somebody who would view child pornography or who has offended. Right. And I kind of take them through just a very quick, you know, one pager of like, this is what this person's life looked like. And, you know, and I kind of lay it out and I say, at what point in the story do you go and ask for help? Right. If you're, if you're 13 and have been sexually abused and seen pornography and no one's talked to you about it, and then you find yourself being attracted to younger children in what world do you, are there people around you who you can go tell that to? Right. Right. And then now you're, you're like, okay, I just won't do it. And then at 17, you're like, oh man, I, I'm wanting to act out with this kid that's at my house, but I'm not going to do it. And then at 22, you're looking at child porn. And then at 25, you're in a church and then you're harming people. At what point in that 
story, if you went to another person in your life and said, hey, I'm having these feelings or these thoughts, would they be like your friend who came and sat in your living room? Or would they be like, well, you're disgusting and awful and this is illegal and, and you're going to jail? And, that, right. and that's an extreme version of the same story for men and women who are Christians who have struggled with porn or lust or sexual things. And it's not abusive. Like it's in, as far as children, it's just heterosexual or homosexual desires. There's no anything illegal. It's kind of what everybody's doing around you in the culture, but your values are being compromised. Who do you go to and say, Hey, I've been sleeping with this guy or I've been acting out in this way, or I've been looking at this type of porn, please help me. And your brain's like, Oh, that's a safe choice right? Like that's going to go well. (laughs) Like, so it's like, we're all a part of this. Like we're all a part, our stances and our postures and how we talk about men and women at church and sex and, and those that commit adultery and those who look at pornography, everybody who's listening to this, the way you talk about it and the way you engage in that in a non-graceful way is a part of why people don't share. Right. Right. It just feels the shame cycle. Yes. And that doesn't mean it justifies the behavior. There shouldn't be consequences or accountability. By all means, there should be. But I think, man, we, we've got to, in the church, um, have a better educated stance on these right. things and use the science and use what, how God has revealed to us that our bodies are made and wired and, and then and teach you know, an ethic around he- healthy sexuality without shame. Right. Because for me and you and for so many people listening to this, you know, they've never even had this conversation out loud with a person. Right. And that's that's what, you know, fuels just being out of control is that there's so many layers between you and self-control. Right. And and you would you say like the opposite of that in recovery is just being aware that like okay, I don't it's not my fault that my dad abused me or that um I I got exposed to these things. But now it is my responsibility to right have the layers between me and the behavior, and so we call it like a three a circle exercise. You know, know what the yellow light, green light, and red light behaviors are, and it is my choice to wake up every day and and choose to look at that and accept. You know, share that with other people, have accountability. You know, work through those things. I, I do agree with that, and I also agree that even doing those things will never be fully successful long-term without looking at the underlying stuff. Of course. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to the, and we, yeah, the trauma. I mean, I think, and even in the CSAT world, you know, since I've become a CSAT, there's been more conversation about that. And as a clinician, more, um, more people going, okay, what do we tackle first? Like all my therapists, we have four or five CSATs or PSAPs at my office and they're, we're staff in case they're like, okay, what do I tackle first? Like the, the, the trauma or the sex addiction or, you know, and it's, it's yes. just this like, yeah, all of it. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, that's why I send them to you is that I need you to. <laughs> well, cause we have the setting and the container to be able to kind of look at all those different pieces at once, no. which is real hard to do in a one hour a week outpatient setting. A hundred percent. And I think, man, the reason I think what you do is so important and, and, you know, we can talk offline about this, but I need to come and and sit through a four day or with you guys too. Uh, I know y'all let clinicians come in and and do that. Um, But I would love to do it because one, I mean, just for my own work and my own, you know, orientation to my own trauma is always good to do that kind of stuff. But also because, you know, 
we need something in the South, you know, we need something down here in Louisiana, um, you know, that, cause I think it's 11 hours, something like that from here to there, um, and flights and all kinds of stuff. But, you know, I would love to connect with you guys and, and have, you know, something similar or something that can be offered in our area. Uh, because you know, there's just such a need and I want to learn and, and soak up, you know, all the knowledge that, that you guys have, uh, because this is only going to be a growing problem. Right. And as Christians, right. like as amazing as you guys are and as packed as you are, that's the truth, right? Is that you're packed, you're always booked up. There's tons of things. And, you know, I think my hope is in the next five to 10 years, more people like you, more people like me, more people who have stories, get into this line of work, whether through a pastoral lens or through a clinical lens, because man, we are in trouble, you know, when it's going to come to dealing with, when these 15 year olds are 25 and these 20 year olds are 30 and these 10 year olds are 20, um, you know, we're doing very little in prevention. Right. And if our, or like, like think about our stories, right? Like our stories are, you know, horrible. And we got exposed to things or got sexually abused. And over the course of years, it turned into all this mess, but it's so that's, that's limited exposure in comparison to what these kids are getting on their devices and in their hand and, and with each other today. That's absolutely true. And, and the culture again is even so much worse than when we grew up. So there, there are solutions and they're risky ones for the individual both who needs help, but they're also risky ones for the church because helping this problem requires also looking at oneself. What, what do I know about healthy sexuality? What has been my experiences? Do I have truly a, a vibrant, connected, intimate marriage or are we what my husband and I, wound up doing for the next 25 years after I entered recovery, living, cohabitating as congenial roommates. Yeah, no, it's so oh, true. I, uh, I couldn't do that anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible because if but, you, uh, that's if, the rest of the story that we didn't get to. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, I'll have you back on. This has been a great <laughs> conversation. Um, have you read our, our bodies tell God's story? Have you read that? I don't think so. Tell me about it. It's um, uh, Christopher Christopher West, and he basically took John Paul II, I think, uh, one of the popes, um, did like a fifteen you know session course on basically a bunch of writings on healthy ethics and Christianity and sexuality. And I'm not Catholic, but uh, the material was so good, and so he put it into a book. And it's just oh. talking about redeeming this idea of what sex is for and what intimacy is for. And, and, uh, I found it to be very, very helpful. Um, and, and again, I it, like any book besides, you know, scripture, I don't take it as a hundred percent true or like it's not, nothing's perfect. Um, but it's been really good. And there's several, several others that are out there, but I think the point you made was great is that we have to, we have to start with our marriages and our homes and going, okay, what's my view of these things? And, what do I actually think about it instead of avoiding it because it's uncomfortable? And one of the things I've been telling a lot of my clients and, and just friends is like, if you find yourself, you know, disinviting God into the room, right? When you're about to have sex or when you're about to act out or when you're about to look at something online, when you don't feel like you can pray 
during sex or through sex or around your sexual issues and talk to God about it, you know, that's the first, you know, sign that there's some deep pain and, and, you know, broken view of it because, you know, sexuality is, is given to us to worship and to find connection and intimacy and all these things. And that's just the opposite of what the world is teaching us, you know, about what sex is. Right. But also I think we need to back up even way before sex and just teach people and teach homes just what what are principles for healthy living and what are principles for healthy relationships. Oh, definitely. Yeah, sex is just a of, byproduct. Of communication in terms of getting rid of these unhealthy rules that govern systems, the, the boundary stuff, to really teaching people how to be intimate in a family setting, how to show up. Well, yeah, um, with authenticity and vulnerability. Yep. Um, That's because good. if we can't do that in other ways, when it comes to such a big deal thing as showing up with God and that vulnerability and then asking God into these deepest secrets and areas of our life, we're flat not going to do it. Yeah. Somebody can tell you, 100%. you need to pray, uh, uh, you know, around these things. And they're like, oh, no. <laughs> right. No, you're right. Uh, you know, it, in you said something like uh, it's almost impossible to, you know, allow a person to go through this culture without, you know, seeing all the sexual content. And it's like, well, yeah, it is. If you don't get back to the basics, like you're saying, if you, if you start as a family and that's, that's what I'm really calling people to, you know, I have two boys, they're six and nine. And so we're in the midst of all of this stuff and you know, nothing's perfect, but because of, because of like limiting screen time, because of, you know, not having iPads in their hands because of knowing how to have conversations compared to so many of my clients and compared to so many people that message me and call me all the time, they aren't limited in their exposure and their hypersexuality and their view of those things. While at the same time, we have more conversations about your penis and erections and how, where babies come from and all those kind of things. So it's, it's this balance of, you don't want to, obviously we don't want to expose them and take this crazy stance of like letting them watch all these things, but we also don't want to hide away like literally what they're going through. They're literally growing human beings that are growing into sexual beings and into puberty. And so we have to do a better job of, having those conversations, those difficult talks, because that that's really, in my opinion, the root of all this stuff. Absolutely. And that that just warms my heart, Clint, because the, the church and to some extent society is doing a better job about preaching against, you know, the unlimited screen time. Sure, the, and porn and yeah. All, all of that stuff just generally in the culture. So good for them. And almost no one is coming around. That's just the beginning piece because there's, it's still going to be out there and they're still going to get exposed to all this. So to give them proactively from, from very, very young, my guess is from what you've described, y'all didn't start talking to your kids about this stuff when they're six and nine, you started when you were teaching the toddler, the parts of their body. I mean, you just, yeah. Two, three. You know, yeah. This is, this yep. is, this is a lifelong way of engaging life and relationships in your family. And, and that's, that's what we need. Um, and that's the piece I think that is still vastly getting underestimated and ignored. A hundred percent. I was at a conference. I can't wait to put the video on. I'm waiting on them to send it to me. But one, the, the two things I've do, done uh, the most at talks is interact with the crowd. Like I love like polling the crowd, you know, and I did this on my Ted talk, um, but I do it every church or school I go to. But with teenagers, 
I was at a conference and there were about 7,000 people at it and they gave me like three sessions. And then I think it was the second session. Um, I told them to turn the house lights on. I said, Hey guys, turn the house lights on. Like, let's see the crowd. Right. So there's a huge crowd of people. I said, I want you to put your hand up in the air if you have a cell phone. Right. So of course the entire room raised their hand. I said, keep your hand up. If you have Snapchat or TikTok." the entire room has their hand in the air. I said, now I want you to keep your hand in the air. If your parent taught you to use your phone or social media and you just, the sound of, you know, and you, I look and I'm like, you know, there's 10 people with their hand in the air. And, and, and that is what I also do when I talk to adult crowds and say, raise your hand. If your parent taught you about masturbation. Right. Right. And then literally I've never had more than three people in a crowd of thousands, keep their hand up. Right. And so then it's easy to say, Go ahead. Especially women. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. What do you mean? Women don't masturbate, Marnie. Of course not. <laughs> but the point is, is that it's, it's such when you engage people and you get them to really look around and go, I mean, you know, you're in a church with 700 people in the room and they're looking, I'm like, I'll pause and say, look around. No one here has their hand up, you know, and I know maybe, you know, the argument could be, well, they're, they're uncomfortable and so they don't want to raise their hand. Sure. Maybe there's five people, but like consistently over the course of 400 talks, like, no, the reality is, is that if you're 35 and up and even, even, you know, younger 90 plus percent of people never had these conversations. Right. And so that, that breeds so much shame because we have been blaming ourselves as adults and teenagers and young adults for all of our behavior and all of our sin and all of our brokenness. And we have responsibility. It's not to shuck responsibility to our parents, but the origin story isn't, I just chose at 35 to start looking at porn or to have an affair or to become an addict or to start cheating or to start abusing. It's this, I want people to see that it's this, it's this ongoing neglect an ongoing lack of discipleship ultimately within the church that around these topics, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't neglect everything, but this area, these things are so important. And I think if we can start to stop divorcing our sexual ethics and our developmental ethics and our biology and all these things from everything else, we have a chance, but now we have the phone and the internet and, you know, and it's just like, we, we have to do something about it. Right. So anyway, I, you know, we can go for days for that. Look, I, I, I love your work. I love all the things you do. Um, I hope that people listening to this will um, check out Bethesda. And if they're struggling, that they will go and sign up and reach out to you guys and, and, and visit because it's life changing. And I hope that they're, you know, I have tons of clinicians that listen to this. And if you're listening to this, check out Bethesda. If you're working in sex addiction um, and you're not a CSAT or if you are a CSAT, you know, really, really stop and think about how important it is to get your clients and your people to, to go dive into these things. You know, it's reasonably priced. Um, I mean, I've, I've never heard a complaint from any of my clients uh, other than it being you. amazing. I just sent someone recently and, and he, he, he was like dreading going and now he's, <laughs> he's back and back in group and he's just like telling everybody how amazing it is. And, and so, you know, 
for me, it's so, I, I know it's going to happen, but every time I send somebody, I'm like a little trepidation of like, you know, they <laughs> sure. gonna, you know, like what, what's it going to, what's going to be. But, um, so I, right. I just value you so much. I value your story. You. It's impacted Thank my you. life and my work. You know, I, you probably wouldn't know this, but you're just getting to hear you talk at some of the symposiums and, and reading, you know, out of the doghouse and hearing some of your videos, like as a male and a Christian who has grown up with trauma and looked at porn and struggled with these things and is trying to be a clinician and a father and a parent, you know, your work has influenced my work. And so it's just cool to like, to be the body of Christ with people and go, man. So, um, as much as I hope my trauma is making room for other people, yours has for me. And so thank you for what you do. Thank you. I appreciate those kind words. That's, that's exactly always my hope that it's not about me. It's about pointing other people both to a very loving, gracious, pursuing God uh, and to help that's available. So I. Well, you do it very well. Do that. I'm grateful to have been with y'all today. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, check out Marnie um, at Bethesda. Is there any other links or, or ats or social media things that you'd want to put out there? Um, Bethesda does have an Instagram account uh, and we have Facebook. So all of those are on our website, BethesdaWorkshops.org. Uh, or links to those and yeah and then marnie's book out of the doghouse is awesome and it's on amazon and it, it, right it's on there co-authored with uh dr rob weiss right. the original book uh and then you know my seminal book for women uh, no stones women oh, yeah that's right sexual shame so an early early work about women's struggle with sex addiction that now is um, published by intervarsity press so uh it's kind of an oldie but but Goody, the original one, came out in 2004 wow. and got republished by University in 2010 or 11. But um, it's just about these core principles that we're talking about, but the pronouns are right for women. That's so. awesome. Well, look, I, I thank you so much, and thanks for listening, guys, and God bless you, and have a good week. <laughs>